This episode of Two Bye Guys is brought to you by No CD. OCD is more than what you see on TV and in the movies. Imagine having unwanted thoughts about your relationship stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away. That's relationship OCD. It comes with unrelenting, intrusive images, thoughts, and urges about your partner or loved one. Breaking the OCD cycle takes effective treatment. Go to nocd.com to get evidence-based treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient OCD therapy. NoCD therapists are trained in exposure response prevention, or ERP therapy, the gold standard treatment for OCD. With NoCD, you can do virtual, live, face-to-face video sessions with one of their licensed, specially trained therapists, and they accept most major insurance plans. In between sessions, you can get support with their in-app tools and free peer communities. To find out more about NoCD, visit NoCD.com, that's N-O-C-D.com, to book a free 15-minute call. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Bye Guys. Welcome back to this mini-series about bisexual married men. I am interviewing men who are in my book, also titled Bisexual Married Men. And I am very excited to be here today uh, with Timothy Babolski in the book. His name is Jeremy. Welcome to Two Bye Guys, Timothy. Nice to see you. Thank you. Nice to see you, too. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So you're, I mean, every story in the book is fascinating. Yours is really unique and there's some really interesting stories in there. Uh, We'll get to some of it today, but there's obviously going to be more in the book. And uh, I think a lot of people will connect with, with many of the things you talked about, especially we'll get to it, but like lots of homophobia in the early days. Uh, So, but before we get into the actual story, Tell me, I interviewed you about a year ago. You were in the second wave of interviews in 2022. Why did you decide to participate in this project? I decided to participate because I had uh, been a public school teacher in Charlotte, North Carolina. And one of the conditions of teaching in North Carolina for uh, lots of different identities, particularly for queer identities, was you had to be as closeted as possible. Uh, now, if you were, you know, a, a cis white man, particularly a Republican, it was all fine. You could shout your identity from the rooftops, uh, but everybody else was expected to be quiet. And laboring under that for so long, when I went into higher ed to discover that I actually had queer students, um, and you know, coming out is always an individual thing, or at least it had been for my generation. You know, you find people that you can trust. But moving from coming out to being out was hugely important part of my personal journey. And so this was a very good opportunity to make sure that people knew that that bi men exist, that were out there, uh, and that they just, they can't assume we don't exist. They can't wipe us away as a fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And I'm so glad you decided to part- to participate and... It's true in general, we need more bi visibility, but like your story sort of really highlights how important a school environment can be and having mentors or role models or teachers as an example of this stuff, how important that can be. And that's something I didn't have either. 
uh, growing up. Okay, so obviously the de- the all the details will be in the book. There will be more there, but tell us like sort of the Cliff Notes version of um, when did you kind of realize you might not be straight, and what was that development process like toward eventually coming out as bisexual? Uh, I, I think I, I knew, and I've been thinking about this more since, since we interviewed, because that's one of the other things is talking about this always makes us think back on what our experiences actually were and the parts that we maybe forgot or, um, neglected. Um, so I, I knew something wasn't, wasn't normal. And I hate to use that word, but that's the way that, that we grew up with it, uh, in elementary school. And it really wasn't until uh, middle school that it really started to, to crystallize. And the, the first real crush I had on a guy was eighth grade. But realizing that that had not been the first crush, uh, you know, so the, the capacity to, to be attracted to people, regardless of gender, um, I didn't even have language for it at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, uh, I happened to go to school in the South. Um, it was very, very tricky to be out in that environment at all. And it wasn't until college that I could find at least a little bit of acceptance and at least come out to, to a relatively small, close circle of friends. Cool. And were you aware by that time in college when you came out of bisexuality? Is that how you came out? Yeah, yeah. So I was definitely using that label, and I had I had read of of all things Robert Heinlein's uh, science fiction uh, early in, in adolescence, and you know he had he had put that uh, label to it in the in the seventies and eighties. But it didn't huh. even even though I knew something wasn't uh, wasn't the way everyone was saying it was supposed to be, uh, it didn't seem like a personal label at that point. Mm-hmm. What, tell me more about that book. I'm not aware of it. Like what, <laughs> what about it did you connect with? Oh, well, so I don't know that I connected with it. It was just there. So huh. Heinlein uh, was himself a little bit of a free love libertarian sort of guy. Uh, there's a lot of misogyny uh, uh, in his stuff. So I'm not going to recommend it as a uh, <laughs> an avenue to personal journey. But he acknowledged in his books the that capacity to be attracted uh, to multiple genders. I think he, he was pretty strict in the male female binary, but it, it just, it created the possibility that other sexualities existed. Mm-hmm. Cool. So it, oh, it, it just kind of clued you in that that's a possibility. Yeah. But Bef- before that, like when you, before you got to college and connected the dots, what was it like to have some awareness of this but not be out and also be in a relatively homophobic environment. Uh, it was it was actually really tricky. And one of the one of the events that I remember very distinctly was that um, there were uh, people who did come out as bi, but it was principally uh, women who who did. So you know, 16, 17 year old high school, and I remember a, a particular young woman who had uh, come out as bi. She had. Uh, apparently uh, dated uh, around a little bit and she got attached to some jock for whatever reason. And the way that it got talked about was sort of the, 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 the unicorn hunter idea. 
and that her purpose in that relationship was was to perform her sexuality for him and for the, his entertainment and all. I remember walking down the hallway and, and listening to the other jocks just bragging on him about, you know, has she made out with a girl for you? Has she done this for you? Has she done that for you? And on the one hand, being absolutely horrified that, you know, somebody could could be objectified in that way. And it was in what I would consider an abusive relationship. I mean, how that's so possessive and strange. But then also to be very weirdly jealous. Mm-hmm. Because even though it wasn't great, it wasn't even remotely good, she could exist. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's powerful to have that example. And yeah, that's so funny of like, I mean, not funny, it's terrible, but like, has she done, has she made it with a girl for you? <laughs> like, it's all for the guy's benefit that a woman might be bisexual. So once you did sort of connect this to yourself and call yourself bisexual in college, how did that affect you personally? And and how did it affect your dating or relationships moving forward? <sighs> Initially, it seemed really, really positive. Um, the friend groups uh, that I had were actually really accepting. Uh, there were a, <laughs> there were a bunch of people who were like buy when drunk, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, so so being by all the time wasn't that it wasn't as big of a stretch. <laughs> uh, but. In terms of relationships, the first real big relationship I got into was actually really deeply problematic um, because part of the reason that I thought it was it, it was something worth pursuing was because the woman in question uh, had actually at least been initially seemingly very accepting, didn't have a problem with it at all. And what I didn't know was that in her background was a lot of... Um, abuse uh, or witnessing abuse um, and that what she was actually looking for was an excuse to have a fairly open non-monogamous relationship and while i don't have a problem with non-monogamy at all that's not what i was interested in and that's not what i was getting into the relationship for but she was convinced and i found this attitude along a lot of other people uh, in this <laughs> same age group that um, because of the perception of bisexual men in particular as, you know, uh, even at the party scene, it was like, you know, bi slots, but then in relationships, you're destined to be unfaithful. And there was this weird elevation of of homosexuality where no bi guy would ever stay with you because the the you know they would constantly need what what you couldn't give them and so there was this deep insecurity also built into the relationship and so it, it, what was initially very lovely in being able to actually be out and honest in a relationship was the first time that that had happened then very quickly became deeply toxic and quite troubling hmm. How did you, I mean, I know so many people are sort of afraid of that kind of biphobia, especially if they're not out to a partner and they're worried that will happen. How did you sort out what was going on and figure out that like 
how did you not internalize the biphobia that was coming from her? And how did you eventually realize that was not a good relationship? Um, I didn't. That's that's the thing. I didn't figure it out. Um, it took far too long. Uh, it, you know, it's always it's always tricky when when we see people who are in abusive relationships. Sometimes from the outside, it's very easy to say, you know, this looks toxic, this feels toxic. Why don't you leave? But when you're actually in that relationship, one is you're invested in it. You want to make it work, or at least I wanted to make it work, and, I, and she may have wanted to make it work too but on on very different terms from from what i was interested in um and i didn't realize it until things started to fall apart and so one was that she actively uh you know for all that there's this fear that bi guys are going to sleep around she's the one who who wanted to uh uh, make the relationship more open uh but actually when i really realized what was going on uh was when she got me fired um so i was uh, working in a, a touristy shop and she outed me to the boss and <laughs> um, within a, a, just a day or two, I was, I was gone. Uh, wow. And one knowing that, so I figured out that she had done it, right. There was, there was no other way. Um, I was not, I, you know, again, this is the, I, the difference between coming out and being out. Right. So, um, I, I was out to her. I was out to a friend group. I was not out in general and uh, certainly not at work. Um, I hadn't said anything. So somebody had to. And <laughs> I had figured out that it was her. But then the next move that she made was to say, oh, well, while you're unemployed, you're just going to have to rely on me. And it very quickly clicked in my brain that, my God, she's trying to trap me in this. Mm -hmm. And at that point I started looking for the exit. Hmm. Yeah. It's very, it is very hard to realize this stuff from the inside and you want to make it work and you love someone and want to rationalize and justify. Uh, It makes sense. Um, So then, so eventually you got out of that relationship. How, how did you then meet your uh, your now wife, and what's what's the story of that relationship? Yeah, uh, and, and that this complicates it a little bit because I met my spouse actually through my ex. Um, mm. She had she had stayed over. My spouse had stayed over as a friend, uh, just needed to you know a couch to crash on for a couple of nights, and that was the initial introduction. Uh, my ex at that point, because she was trying to open up the relationship, had said. You know, well, you know, if I'm looking, you need to look, right? Um, you know, let's. It, I, I, at least she was trying to make it fair uh, for all the other things that were quite toxic in that. Um, but part of her way of coping with it was she, she wanted to seem like it was fair, but not make it fair. So, you know, she would she would say, you know, why not that person? Why not this person? And if there, if I ever showed an ounce of interest in anybody else, she would set out to try and sabotage that potential. And so that's actually Mm -hmm. what happened with, with my future spouse. Um, She set out, set out to sabotage it. And when uh, uh, my spouse is Sam, when Sam, you know, started to be interested, uh, my ex went up to her and said, Hey, you know, you know, he's bi, right. And, and in a way where it was designed to like make her pull back, to feed those phobias, to uh, 
make her not want to be involved and, and to, to keep the cycle of abuse going so that I would continue to be dependent. And Sam's reaction was so beautiful. Uh, she just turned to her and said, so? And, you know, there, there is something really delightful about going from sort of false acceptance, the, this appearance of being accepted, to actually being accepted yeah and and what a wild version of the coming out story where you didn't even do it it was done to you you were outed and yet the the desired outcome of your ex didn't happen and you found this acceptance like when you look back at that how do you feel about that and also like do you think you would have come out to your now wife so quickly if your ex hadn't done it uh, without your consent? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not so quickly, right? I mean, there's there's all kinds of feelers that, that you know, you, you put out there, little subtle comments might slip in um, to see if somebody is a little bit more accepting or if there are any, any triggers that just prompt a really bigoted reaction, you know, to pull back from somebody. Uh, so no, it was, certainly wouldn't, wouldn't have, have been as quickly or right away. Because again, my, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, the strategy was always to be as closeted as possible, but only be out to people you knew you could trust. And so you had to get that trust first. For it to happen the other way, the was the the happiest little mistake. Yep. Yeah, I think I think even today people, many people really need to feel that safety and put the feelers out before. Uh, I mean, not not everyone, and certainly things are becoming more open-minded and accepting, but uh, for many people, that that yeah. hasn't changed, I don't think. And they, they're, they're not going to le- leap unless they know the net is there, especially within a marriage. Tell me then a little bit about how your relationship progressed. How did you decide to get married? And like, how is your bisexuality part of this relationship today? Uh, yeah, so the the relationship itself was was also a little bit of a happy accident, um, although on purpose. I have so many times where people have reacted with with really good intent to say, you know, um, maybe you're not comfortable being out. We're all comfortable, so we're gonna we're gonna push you into this situation. And uh, I had uh, taken a, a trip up to Atlanta with Sam and, and, a, and a whole group of friends. And we had to figure out where to bunk down for the night. Uh, one of our friends in the group was moving to a new place. And so they had this apartment uh, open, but there was no furniture. Um, I don't even think the electricity was all turned on because uh, I remember it being very cold. Uh, but we all needed places to, to crash and there were only so many couches. So with amongst the six or seven of us, they had devised amongst themselves without telling Samurai, they had devised this plan to get the two of us together in this not yet furnished, just rented apartment uh, while everybody else went somewhere else. Just give us, give us time alone together and maybe they'll figure it out. And... <laughs> And we figured it out. You did. You did. Yeah. Um, 
you know, there's it's uh, almost ludicrously cinematic uh, to to think that we were, you know, on the floor um, with I, I, we maybe had one blanket and we're cuddled up against each other, trying to stay warm on this uncomfortable floor uh, because our friend group has, has decided that we should be a couple. But it worked out. But it worked. Just out. Kept, it worked beautifully. And you kept dating. And then, and, when and, did you get married? Yeah, we got we got married oh, a little over a year after that. Um, so you know, part of, and I I would suspect of myself if I could think back in time that that would never happen. I would never get married after after a year. It'd take years and years. Uh, but part of the reason that it went so quickly was because she already knew. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have to have this long period of trying to figure out, could this work? Could this be stable? She already knew. She had already seen the worst that could happen. And, you know, the way the former relationship had had exploded um, was not an amicable end to that relationship. And she stood with me the entire time. Hmm. And I don't, I don't know, I would just tell any young person watching or listening that if you find someone who's willing to stand with you through the worst moments, that's someone you want to stay with. Maybe not romantically, but that is someone you want in your life. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, you, she had basically completely accepted this part of you that had you had taken a long time to recognize accept get comfortable with and she accepted it even before you started dating really very different from what you'd experienced and uh, a nice start so you mentioned when you got to college that it was a much more accepting environment and um, I know from your story that you talked a lot about like being in artistic communities and artistic environments. Yeah. I think I'm remembering correctly. Yes. You are. How do you, why do you think that those environments were more accepting and how did being an artist and being in that world sort of influence your queerness over time? This is actually something that I think is intrinsic in the arts and in all of the arts, actually one, there's just a natural impulse of introverted people to get involved with the arts. And I've always seen it as a way of being psychologically complete. If you have difficulty processing around other people, then, you know, artistic production, one, it can stand in between you and other people. So it can act as a little bit of a shield, but then it's also a window into things that you want to share. It's control about what and how you want to share, how you want to present. So whether you're a storyteller or a dancer, you're on the stage, or, you know, I don't want to uh, say all podcasters have uh, a little bit of introversion built in, but that may be true too. But the arts allow for this expressiveness that for a lot of people is uh, fraught with difficulty. And just... I have known more queer people in the arts than in any other arena of life. Simply because it is a place where we have the tools, we have the skill set, and and we can 
express what we need to. We can work and be and act the way we need to. And it just becomes part of, of our complete identity. Hmm. It's a really interesting answer to me. I, 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 I don't, I mean, I've seen this correlation too, but I don't know if I really thought about how the arts is about expressing something inside you in a, in a creative way. And so you learn to do that and you must have a value on expressing parts of yourself and ideas that you have. And, and if that's a value, it, you're, you may notice your queerness and at some point want to express that also either as part of the art or just as part of your life. Um, that's really and, interesting. And then rather, rather, it's a, a little silly, but it's also, there's more acceptance of us as human beings, as actual physical bodies. Um, and so one of the ways that you could tell uh, the queer kids, so I didn't just take art classes. I actually went to the Savannah College of Art and Design. So this was a full liberal arts, uh, art-focused institution to get a Bachelor of Fine Arts. And one of the, um, I know I will say anyone who, who writes uh, uh, dirty stories or films porn or whatever, they always get it wrong when it comes to life drawing classes. It's not, <laughs> it's not uh, as purient as people think, but you can absolutely tell who the queer folk are and who the straight folk are based on who's comfortable around the human body. Hmm. Because there is such a, a, a huge degree of internalized homophobia, particularly among cis straight men, that if uh, you know a, a male model disrobes in front of you, there's almost like you there's this performative ick you have to do, you know, mm -hmm. or you have to laugh, or you you have to joke, you have to do something to to perform your your masculinity and your straightness all in one go. Yeah, and. And then the the queer kids in the class are all just like, yeah, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. I and I, I mean, I have not uh, drawn nude models lately, but uh, but I've seen that performative ick in other contexts. That's absolutely, absolutely accurate, and uh, it's interesting. Um, Okay, I have so many things I want to talk about. Actually, your story is very rich, and there's lots of lots of different aspects. But, but I want to ask about gender because um, I I know when we talked last year, you had recently adopted a non-binary identity and are identifying as non-binary. I also apologize. I I forgot to ask you what pronouns you're using at the beginning, and I may have made an assumption. What what pronouns do you use? And 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 also just like. How did coming out affect your conception of gender and, and what's your gender identity at the moment? Um, yeah, non-binary seems to be a, a good word for it. Um, you know, generally, because I'm in a classroom and I teach, um, you know, there's there's the layer of professionalism that that uh, uh, has to happen. You know, so, of course, you've got pronouns in the bio, uh, <laughs> pronouns in the email signature. Uh but most people do just make assumptions. Um, and so even when I'm not uh, presenting terribly masculine, um, you know, I, I have a big bushy facial hair. They're, they're, they're going to make assumptions. Um, 
and I'm I'm fine with that. And I've I've actually noticed from among a number of my students uh, that also identify as non-binary that there is uh, at least one flavor of non-binary. There seem to be quite a number uh, where the gender perception is negotiable. Mm-hmm. Use 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 a pronoun that you feel comfortable. So um, if you want to refer to me as he, that is fine. They, that is fine. And if you don't know, then my advice to anybody would be: if you don't know, just use my name. That's perfectly fine. Yeah, cool. And and how did you come to that identity? Was it was it related to coming out as bi, or was it a separate thing later? I it, I think it was a separate thing later. Um, I had I had always had an understanding, um, and I think a lot of queer people do, of trying to figure out exactly how how masculine or how feminine they they want to be. Um, and I know there is in a lot of the anti-trans discourse now this idea that we're no longer allowing for uh, femme gay men, and I I just don't think that's true. Um, but I was definitely trying to figure that stuff out when I was growing up. I don't know if I if I mentioned this um, in our first uh, interview. Uh, I have sisters, um, and there had been a tradition in my family going back at least a couple of generations that that when the the daughters and I have only had aunts on one side, uh, so it was like five five girls on on my from my grandmother. Uh, that each one of them, when they turned, I think it was 10 years old, they got a porcelain doll. And so I watched as my sisters, they're, you know, four years and 10 years older than I am. When they got their porcelain dolls, I was old enough to notice, hey, they got their porcelain dolls. And when I turned 10, I remember asking my mom, where's mine? Why, why, am, I, why am I being left out of this? Mm-hmm. Um, and my mother was lovely about it. Um, and and it says, okay, fine, well, let's just look through the catalogs. Let's find, let's find one you like, you know. And, and made it a thing. But again, at that point, I certainly didn't have the vocabulary to, to even think about what I was trying to negotiate. You know, there was nothing but the gender binary. I know sometimes we try to make the, the history of, of bisexuality uh, more inclusive, but at least in Georgia in the 80s and 90s, there was only men and women. It just was not understood that there could be any other gender expressions. When I, uh, after I got my master's degree though, I basically decided things needed to change. And even then rolling into the doctoral programs, there's a huge period of adjustment. Anytime there's a new environment, this is always one of the dangers of, of queerness is, you know, unless you are always out, to the point where every time somebody encounters you, they know exactly who you are, what they're dealing with. And if they're, if they're going to be a bigot, if they're going to be violent towards you, you're going to see it right in that moment. But if you don't want to have that encounter, uh, you know, there is this moment of like retreating into the closet every time, you know, go mm-hmm. to a new space. So when I went off to get my doctorate, there absolutely was that just like retreat back into the closet, wait until wait until I know there's some security. And it was actually my students who really triggered it. Because how do you explain to students 
how do you explain to students and, and, you know, I teach education. So how do you explain to people that are going to be teaching children, teenagers, how to be more acceptive, how to be more open, how to be empathetic, how to understand their own students' journeys towards understanding themselves if all their teachers are locked in the closet? Yeah. The other factor there, and it, 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 my life seems to ping pong back and forth between overwhelming acceptance and, and then just some really toxic environments. Uh, and the, there were colleagues that I worked with who were quite biphobic. And I made the decision in a different way than I ever had before. So in the past, encountering that, that's when I would have retreated even further back into the closet, just out of self-protectiveness. But at that point, it's, it was, no, why am I doing this? Why am I, why am I performing this way for a bigot? Yeah. And so it became very necessary to reclaim my identity at that point and say, I am just done with this. I am not going to allow you to be abusive towards students, even, even if they don't know that it's happening. Cause some of this was happening behind closed doors when students weren't in the room. But how am I going to allow that to happen? Uh, and if the only way that I can do it is by putting myself in front of you fully, completely, honestly, then that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, beautiful. I want to talk more about school in a moment, but but I also, I noticed your nails, lovely color. I'm not wearing anything at the moment, but I usually do, but I love that color. How, Thank you. How do you express your gender these days in non-conforming ways? And like, why, what do you get out of doing that? Uh, it's comfort. I, I don't know any other way to describe it. It's, it's what feels comfortable. It's what feels right. Um, you know, so I, I, it may not be visible behind the headphones, but I have quite, uh, quite long hair. Um, and in different places, that's always been uh, a signal. Um, it's perceived very differently. So when I was teaching in North Carolina, um, I was routinely called ma'am. Uh, even with facial hair, I was routinely called ma'am just because they would look at long hair as a signal. And even, and, and you know, people would always apologize. Like, I'm so sorry that, that, that they wouldn't use misgendered, but like, oh, come on, you know, can't you see? Um, but it never really bothered me, right? Because that's actually the dance that I was trying to do. Hmm. It's like if I if I'm if I'm making you question a little bit, if I'm making you rethink your assumptions, then I'm doing something right. Hmm. Uh, in classrooms, um, you know, I was in in a, observing a student teacher in Minneapolis and had a Somali student ask me. Uh, and in the Somali culture, of course, it is very highly gendered. Um, you know, binary is really tightly enforced, so men do not have long hair at all. It is kept very short, but the women do have long hair. Most of the Somali students were wearing hijabs. Uh, and I had a young uh, Somali uh, girl ask me, are you a boy or a girl? And my answer to her was, why does it matter? Good answer. Why does it matter? Is it going to change how you, how you think of me? And if it does, do I care what you think of me? Interesting. So for me, you know, um, uh, it's just about mixing, 
mixing the masculine and the feminine a little bit, I, I sometimes refer to it to my students as as tweaking heteronormativity. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and you know, so dress, nails, hair. I'm I'm just going to be comfortable. Cool. I love that. I like the tweaking heteronormativity, which, you know, it's what I, I like to try to do too, is like push even a little bit, sometimes a lot, but even a little bit, just like push the boundaries of what, you know, an identity means or what is possible for other people. And I also identify with what you said, like actually liking when somebody misgendered you because it's showing that you're kind of fucking with gender in ways. And uh, I, I get that with being bisexual. Like I actually kind of like in a weird way sometimes when people assume I'm straight in certain sh spaces or assume I'm gay in a gay space and I get to say, nope, actually I'm bisexual. Like yes. I get on the one hand, you don't want to have to do that all the time, but I actually kind of like subverting their expectations and, and surprising them in that way. And then sometimes they're like, really? And I, am now confident enough in my identity that 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 doesn't throw me for a loop and i i'm like yeah really like what do you want to know and i kind of like doing that it's kind of fun stay tuned there's a little bit more of this episode with timothy coming up but there's even more on patreon 18 more minutes with timothy we had a really fascinating discussion you won't want to miss it we talked more about school and how that can be so formative and how queerness can show up in school or not and the effects that can have and how timothy has navigated both being a queer student and being a queer teacher so head to patreon.com slash Cohen to listen and to see full video of this entire interview with Timothy. You can watch him talk and also watch my reactions, which is fun. It's only $5 a month to subscribe. Thank you so much to everyone who has subscribed there already. It helps me keep this going. I appreciate it. And now here's a little bit more with Timothy. Okay, last couple questions. Um... What do you hope that other people will get out of reading your story in the book? I think the biggest thing that I, that I want them to realize is that we have such a variety of experiences of sexuality and gender that a lot of the assumptions that they have been asked to make are inherently false. I've known so many people that if they were open-minded enough might accept a buy label or a pan or even just questioning but are so embedded in this heteronormative ideals particularly or when it comes also to gender right they need to be a man's man they need to be a woman's woman um that they reject that part of themselves. They completely silence that part of themselves. And I don't know what it would be like to live that incompletely and that inauthentically, but I can only assume that it's unfulfilling. But I also want them to know, because some of these experiences that I had is as frustrating as it is to look back at the AIDS crisis and the reaction that the government had to it, the reaction that you know students had, that teachers had, the way that we internalized homophobia even within the community, it's still happening. 
when I when I look at what you know Moms for Liberty is is doing, when I look at what these groups, all of these states that are trying to exclude trans kids, if if we can't see the parallels between all of the anti-trans stuff that's happening now and the anti-gay stuff that was happening 40 years ago, we're missing something huge. All of the excuses, all of the stories that they are saying about trans people being you know, groomers and whatnot is exactly what they were saying about gay people in the 80s and to a certain extent is what they're still saying now. You know, the myths of bisexuality, again, is just a phase or that, the, you know, the men are all going to cheat or um, I don't really even want to go through them because they're all so destructive or that we just don't exist. Yeah. Right. We need to consciously and continuously confront these. And so getting stories out there, this is the only way I as a teacher know how to do it is to make sure that our stories are told to try and get our stories heard. And even people who right now might not be willing to listen in one year or 10 years or 20 years might have something happen to them where they will. And I want yeah. those stories to be there when they're ready. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense to me because it is very similar to my, you know, intentions with the book and, and my intention to not just sort of explain, talk about the identity and explain why it's normal and everything, but, but really focus on these 13 unique stories and there's through lines in them, but they're all very different. And there's a lot of, you know, diversity in them. But uh, when you read the story, it humanizes this and you don't, you don't even always need an argument after it's humanized and you really, just connect with a story. Um, and so I do think that's, that's a big, a big thing that we need more of. And I thank you for sharing your story in the book. Um, last question. How does your sexuality, gender, how does your queerness bring you joy? I've, I've actually been trying to, to think this through because it's been, it's been so tricky sometimes politically. Um, I, I will go back to one, the idea of comfort. It is where I am comfortable. Yeah. You know, if, if I can throw on a rugby shirt and a mini skirt, like that's just a place of comfort. Um, it just feels right. And, you know, to, to be able to, you know, watch a movie with my spouse and to be able to, to say, you know, uh, who's attractive, who's hot and who's not, um, you know, there's, there's something really delightful about that. Um, so for be part of, of queer joy is actually in outness itself. Um, I don't know that I had a lot of queer joy when I had to be more closeted, but the, the more willing I have been to be open, the more uh, I have been able to find accepting people. The, the campuses that I work on are, are full of, of wonderful accepting people and, and if they're not, they stay away. I kind of like that. But I also had, and I'm, I'm hesitating to tell anyone else's story, but it's sort of part of my story now. I had a student who is an out lesbian 
go through the program and think that she was going to have to drop out, think that there was going to be no place. Uh, she's in a committed relationship. She has uh, a kid, but that, you know, in a small state like Maine, there's no way that she could be a teacher. There's no way that she could be out and be a teacher. And she came up to me just a couple of weeks ago and said, because I have been so out, she stayed in and in another year or two will be able to teach kids on her own. I, I don't know anything more joyful than that. That's making me tear up. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I'm, I'm having a reaction to that. I just think that's, those are the things that make me cry is when like the example of someone helps someone else be, you know, be out there, be themselves, have lived the life they want to. Um, That's beautiful. I'm, I'm glad you got to experience that joy a few weeks ago and, uh, and, and all, and all the time now in your life with this uh, more being out uh, versus coming out. It's, uh, it's lovely to see. I have to thank you for the opportunity. You know, um, we need people who aren't just willing to tell stories. We need people who are willing to share them and people who are willing to listen. And, you know, when, when I saw, you know, the, the notice posted on Twitter, it just, it lit a fire. I'm glad you're what you're welcome. I'm glad. I'm so glad uh, you participated in it. And I can't wait for everyone to read the rest of the story. There's so many details in your chapter that we didn't get to today. There's a lot of little anecdotes from back when you were in school and growing up that are uh, some of them are kind of heavy and but they're all really fascinating and show you what the time was like and how hard it is to 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 do what you've done and and it shows all the work that you've done to be in the place that you are today and and paying it forward uh in the many ways you are so thank you so much again for being here and doing this interview and being in the book uh i really appreciate it thank you for having me Two Bad Guys is produced and edited by me, Rob Cohen, and it was created by me and Alex Boyd. Our logo art is by Caitlin Weinman. Our music is by Ross Pincer. We are supported by the Gotham, and we are part of the Zencaster Creator Network. Visit patreon.com slash Cohen for bonus content, early access, exclusive videos, and behind-the-scenes outtakes. Thanks so much for your support, and thanks for listening to Two Bad Guys.